Good evening, everyone. Evening, Lewis. Thank you. Great to see you. I um, yeah. I just want. I just want to start to say thanks. Thanks for thanks for hanging in in this in this world in this life in this walk that we're walking together this semester. It's been a real joy um, to have you as as a as a part of this thing. Um, I'm just. I'm also just really grateful for. Uh, our small group leaders and our worship band and our event planners and our, our teams who are, are building bridges in this campus community. There's a lot of great stuff happening. So uh, we are coming to the end of our series in, in Colossians. We're not finishing the book of Colossians. Uh, you will notice if you have your Bible that there is another chapter and a half left that we are, we are not getting to. But I think this is a good place uh, to end. Um, right after this, there's uh, more really good and rich and encouraging and challenging uh, words to us about things like marriage about things like work, about things like power. And um, I, I'd encourage you to, to, to finish that off if, if you'd like. Um, but we're finishing our series in this section in verses 5 to 17 of Colossians 3, which we've been calling Jesus is Enough. And we've been talking all semester long that Jesus is, is enough for us. But we talked about how he's enough to make us thankful. He's enough for our story. He's enough for our allegiance. He's enough for our glory. He's enough for the battle. He's enough when we slip back into old ways. He's enough for our belonging He's enough to be the one we seek. And so we're going to finish by simply saying, Jesus is enough, so follow him. Jesus is enough, so follow him. We've also arrived in this section in Colossians on what is sort of Paul's application. He's been talking about the centrality of Christ and of the gospel, that we are in Christ and he is in us. Christ is our life. He's been talking about that all of Colossians. And now there's the, there's the therefore. Because of that, how are we supposed to live so it's really important to remember that books like Colossians were intended originally to be read out loud all at once in one sitting. So you cannot separate what we're looking at today from what has come before. If you do, it will kind of sound like an angry, incessant demand to do good things and not bad things or else. And that's not what it is. This comes right after the section where Paul has said uh, these amazing things like you have died and been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God, and Jesus himself is your life. So don't forget that, okay? Don't forget that. That's what's come before. Now we're going to read. So please read along with me. It's on the back of your handout. A little bit of a longer passage than we've done it at some weeks, but uh, verses 5 to 17 of Colossians 3. It says this, Put to death, therefore, that therefore is a reference to what's just come before. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we are grateful for a chance to, to read your word, and I pray like you say that it would, be, it would be for our good, that it would dwell in us richly and teach us in all wisdom. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd be at work in it right now in our own hearts. We might know you and love you more and love one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You, you uh, probably don't know that the Richmond Marathon was this, was this weekend. I actually saw some Sydney here. I saw Sydney there and um, saw Laws there. I was there myself. I also ran. I, uh, I beat Laws by about an hour. Um, now, he was running the full marathon. I was running the half. But I, in terms of like total elapsed time, crushed him, which, uh, which felt good. It was, uh, it was sort of a cold and windy morning. It was 37 degrees at the start uh, with the windshield that was, that was much colder. And so uh, you're, kind of, you're trying to figure out as you get started on a race like this, like how, how much clothes to wear. Because as you're standing in between some buildings downtown as the breeze is coming through, you're, you're freezing cold. But you know that once you get going and as the day warms up, you're going to be hot. So like what's the right you know, thing to put on your body? And I kind of went with what I hope was right, you know, like I'm going to be freezing cold right now and hopefully I'll survive and then at mile like five I'll be good. What, what a lot of people did, which I didn't know was a thing, is that they put like trash bags on themselves like ponchos or they wore really old worn out jackets or tattered sweatshirts. And, the, and, and what they would do is that as they're running, as they warm up, they would just take them off and just like throw them on the side of the road, just leaving them forever. And you kind of had to be okay with this idea that like you could lose an old tattered sweatshirt. And, and I think for many people, it's, it's worth it. It's fine to lose an old sweatshirt because you want to have on the right things to run the race well and to finish the race well. Paul actually talks about the life of faith as a race at times, as this race that we are running of trying to walk in faith and, and aligning our own lives with who Jesus is and what he calls us to be. And just like a cold half marathon or marathon, what you put on and what you take off is really important. What you have on and what you have removed from you is vitally important to how well you can, you can run the race. And that's what this passage is about. That's what we're kind of ending in. What do you need to put on and what do you need to take off? What do you need to embrace and what do you need to renounce? This is really, really difficult because we live in a culture that tells you that the one thing that everyone needs to embrace is that you can't renounce anything. That everything is good. That every idea or belief or behavior is good and equal and valid as long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's the waters that you, that you swim in. And the Bible rejects this completely. The, the Bible says that we are called to live a life of love in the terms that, that Jesus sets. And that Jesus is the one who is worthy to set the terms of what that love is. Because Jesus is the one who has committed the ultimate act of love. 
and his death on the cross, where he receives on himself, though he didn't deserve it, the punishment that we deserve because of the ways that we don't follow God perfectly. So he actually gets to set those those terms. And, And what Paul uses to describe these terms, he talks about putting off and putting on. So that's all we're going to do tonight. We're going to, we're going to talk about following Jesus and what we put off and what we put on, okay? And, and Paul starts with, with putting off. And there's a, a couple ways he says it. In, in verse 5, he says, put it to death. In verse 8, he says, put it away. And in verse 9, he says, put it off. And, and here's what he means. There are, there are things that we are prone to as weak and sinful human beings. Uh, and, and following Christ means radically and ruthlessly trying to remove from our lives the things that keep us from living in line with Jesus' love. Following Christ means radically and ruthlessly removing from our lives the things that are not aligned with Jesus' love. And Paul goes pretty hard here pretty quick. He gives sort of in this section two lists of the type of things that we need to put off. Okay, the first one is in verse 5. Here's what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Remember in, in the beginning of chapter 3, what we talked about last week, is to set your minds on things that are above, on Jesus and the love of God. So this is the opposite of that, okay? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. That, that, that word just basically means sex outside of marriage. And he says impurity. This is sort of another broader word for sexual sin. You can think of terms of like lustful thoughts or maybe pornography, those kinds of things, all right? And then he goes on to say evil desire, which is more of kind of a general selfish ambition, and then covetousness, which is idolatry. And, and covetousness is, is the sense of greed, of desiring things, the accumulation of things so much that it hurts your contentedness in God. That's a pretty intense list. He's sort of going straight for the jugular here uh, right away and addressing two things that we can, we can certainly relate to, sexual sin and the desire for stuff, for worldly stuff. Uh, and these are things that all people in all places and at all times have struggled with. There, there are times when the Bible talks about things that like, aren't really our struggle, right? And there are some times that the Bible talks about things and we're like, okay, that's right where we live, isn't it? Okay? Uh, you, you can think about like the college hookup culture that you live in. You can think about the, the epidemic of addiction to pornography, which statistically speaking, a very high percentage of people in this room are affected by or have been affected by in their life. You can think about the way that we justify sex before marriage. These things are, are all around us. They're all around us, and they've been a part of our story in, in lots of, of ways. And one of the things that Paul's doing in this passage and that we have to wrestle with tonight is to make us feel the weight of how egregious and how dangerous and how harmful these things are to us and to the people in our lives. He actually wants us to feel the weight of that tonight. And there's going to be comfort for us. There's going to be comfort, but he wants us to feel uh, the weight of that, so much so that he says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. You know, uh, a lot of times people, people sort of tend to look at the Bible and think, well, in the Old Testament, there's this God of wrath, but in the New Testament, there's this God of like love and happiness, and they don't seem to make sense. Look in Colossians 3. 
There is one true God, and he's a God of love, and he's actually a God of wrath. And one of the things that, that, I, that I hope to challenge you with, and I hope you would at least consider, is that God being a God of wrath, A, it makes perfect sense, and B, it's actually a beautiful part of him. And here's what I mean. A, a God who is a God of truth and goodness and beauty could do nothing but oppose the things that destroy truth and beauty and goodness. This is, this is the way that... Uh, this is the way that J.I. Packer says it. He said, Would a God who takes as much pleasure in evil as he does in good be a good God? If he didn't care, would he really be, would he, would he really be good? And the idea here, Paul is saying put these things to death. The idea is that it, if you participate in these things, if you give yourself over to these sorts of indulgences of the flesh, they actually erode your humanity. They actually hurt your ability to live as the kind of human that God made you to be in his image. And if you keep going down that road, you will actually become so debased in a spiritual sense that you fail to image God, who is your creator. And the hope for you becomes very small. And, and yeah, Paul's talking about hell here. And I want to be real careful to say what he is saying and what he isn't saying, okay? Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying if you ever struggle with sexual sin, you're going to hell. Thank God. That's not what he's saying, okay? Because what we have to remember is that if you are a Christian, then the wrath of God against your sins has been poured out, has been emptied, has been spent on Jesus on the cross. That is the gospel. It has been poured out on Jesus on the cross. But what Paul wants you to feel is that if you give yourself away to these things, it will put you on a trajectory towards death. It will, actually, it will actually start to harm your soul. Paul is basically saying, either you are killing your sin or your sin is killing you. That's how the world, that's how the world works. So when we follow Christ, when we believe in him and we struggle and we stumble and we mess up and we make mistakes, we're, we're covered. We're covered by the blood of Christ. You're safe. You're protected. But he wants you to see that if you give yourself away to these things in a rejection of Christ, it actually puts you on a very scary, scary path. And, and, and he starts there, and then he goes on in verse 8 with this second list, okay? He says this, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. The, the first list is kind of about how we, how we handle desire and relationships. The sense that we choose lust over love. This one is more about how we handle our, our thoughts and our words in relationships. Look at this list. It's, it's using your words to tear people down instead of using your words to build people up. It's using your words for the opposite purposes of love. We're prone to, to use our words like that. So, so here's the invitation and the challenge of, of tonight as we get started, okay? The invitation and the challenge of tonight is, is to reflect on the ways that you and me are prone to choose lust over love. To reflect on the ways that you and me are prone to use our words and in our thoughts to tear people down instead of to build them up. God's word actually calls us to go to that place to reflect on the, on the ways that we are broken and weak in these areas. And, and if you're like me, if you're like me and, and you start to think about these things, it doesn't take very long before you start to feel guilt and shame and dirtiness and brokenness and hurt and regret and fear. Like, what if people find out? 
What if people know my story? What if people know my thoughts? What if people know what I've done? What if people know what I'm doing when no one's around? You start to, you start to feel those things. And, and, and Paul's word to us here is very simple and very direct. Those things that you're prone to, you need to put them to death. You need to kill them. You need to remove them. You need to take them off and throw them on the side of the road so that you can keep running this race, so that you can finish this race. The, the attitude of a Christian is like, a, in, t- in terms of their moral integrity, it's like the way white blood cells work in our, in our body. Okay, you got, you got germs. I'm going to make them sound like they have a personality. You got germs that are, that are trying to get inside your body, right? And they're fine going through a cut, and they're fine going through something that you touch, and then you rub your eye. They're fine being inhaled. They, they'll get in any way that they can. They'll infiltrate, and they'll, and they'll try to make you sick, okay? I'm not, a, I'm not a biology major, by the way, so just check this. on the on, I, I looked this up on the Internet today. Uh, and, and, and your body can detect this, right? Because it can sort of, it, it, your body can detect the proteins that are on the surface of your cells. And when it detects this kind of infiltration, it sends the, uh, the white blood cells, which your body makes in your bone marrow and which your body stores in various places in your anatomy, okay? You with me? You know what I'm talking about. We've got some smart people who know what I'm talking about in here. And, and, they're, and they're just hanging out. Those blood cells are just hanging out, poised and ready to attack. And when it, when it, when an infestation comes in, they attack. Like, that's, that's, our, that's what Christian integrity is supposed to be about. You are on the lookout, poised for anything that might come in to hurt your integrity and your character. And when it is, you immediately fight it. And you reject it and you destroy it. That, that's, what, that's what Paul is really asking us to do. Here, here's how a theologian named N.T. Wright He's one of my favorites, says. He says, every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him or her personally and then to cut them off without pity. This is one of the things that I'm going to ask you to do this week. This is one of the things that I'm going to challenge you to do. This is one of the things that you're going to talk about in your small groups. I'm going to leave it up to you guys to figure out how to do that in a, in a safe way, especially if you have a, if you have a bigger group. But, but what, I want, what I want you to do this week is I want, this is just a suggestion, okay? I want you to find the safest friend that you have. And I want you to share with them the places where you feel like sin is defeating you. Do you have a friend that you can talk to about pornography? Do you have a friend that you can talk to about sex? Do you have a friend that you can talk to about your thought life and your anger towards others? The way you can, do you have a friend that you can talk to about that? That, that's my challenge to you. That's the kind of uh, thing that Paul's asking us to do. And then what I want you to do with that friend is come up with some battle plans and some lines of defense. Because what we do is we have this attitude most of the time that the things we are struggling with are either A, not that big a deal, or B, we'll be able to figure it out on our own eventually. And even though the good news of the gospel is the good news of the gospel, it is a big deal, and you probably won't ever figure it out on your own. That means if you're having trouble not over-drinking, you need to stop putting yourself in situations where everyone around you is drinking all the time. It means if Instagram is, co- is, is causing you to be jealous and insecure all the time, you need to delete it from your phone. It means that if you're struggling with pornography, you need to get covenantized software on your computer and you need to get a friend to text you every single night for the next year to make sure you're doing okay. You need to put things in your life to root this out. You actually need some help. 
If you are not fighting to kill your sin, it's actually going to be killing you. Paul says you need to put it to death. That's this week's reason for prioritizing friendships with people who can hold you accountable and encourage you spiritually. That's this week's reason. Because those are the people who are going to help you fight this fight to put these things to death. Because you actually can't do that by yourself. We're going to either take calculated, precise steps to help us resist temptation, or we're going to hope for the best. Hoping for the best is not a good strategy in anything. Okay, It's not a very good strategy. And, and I want to tell you this. Part of the irony of this whole conversation is that when you start to fight these battles, you're going to lose some of them. And in fact, you're never going to win all of them. Until the resurrection. Until the day when you have a life of perfect purity before God. Until then, you, you will actually always lose some of these battles. And in, and in that kind of place is where we, where we rely on the words of the Bible that say things like, my grace is sufficient, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And fighting this fight is good and beautiful and noble, even if you lose. We're actually called to fight, to run this race. And when we're not wearing the right thing, when we're, when we're wearing something that is keeping us from running well, we've got to take it off and we've got to throw it away. And, and, and there's actually reason for hope. Paul says in verse 10 that uh, this new self we're putting on, putting off the old self and putting on this new self, this new identity in Christ, is actually being renewed in us. It's actually being renewed. You know what that means? God is at work in you all the time. It means that God is in you and with you all the time. When you're fighting battles and losing, he's with you. When you're fighting battles and having victory, he's with you. You usually can't see it happen in the moment. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small and then it grows big over time. So we don't always get immediate results. And then this is crazy. Paul finishes this section in verse 11. He says this. I'll read it again. He says here, this is in this kind of new community of God in Christ. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. One of the other ways that Christians have failed to live a life of love is in the way that we treat people who are different from us. If you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here, you've probably observed this in Christians. So one of the things that historically Christians have failed at. And, and what Paul is saying is that division and stereotypes and mistreatment based on race and gender and social class are evil. And there's no room for them. And not only do we, need to, do we need to believe that in Christ we are one because of his redeeming love for all of us, we actually need to like, work diligently to, to embrace and liberate the people who have suffered because of this kind of mistreatment, because of this kind of discrimination. There's no room for it in the body of Christ, and so we need to put it off. We need to put it away. We need to put it to death. That's the first move of following Jesus. It's actually this removing it's actually this ruthless, pitiless fight against our sins. Okay? That's the first move. And we get to move on from here. And there's good news for us if we do. If, if you're a Christian here at this point, you're, you're, you may be thinking something like, okay, how do I have the strength to do that? How do I follow through? What happens if I can't do it? What happens if I can't resist? What happens if I 
stumble back and struggle again in the same things I've been struggling in? What happens if I don't know how to talk to somebody? What happens if I don't have a friend that's safe enough to do this with? What happens if I do, but it doesn't help, right? These, these are the kind of questions that we're, that we're asking. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, you may be asking the same kind of questions. You want to live a life of consistency with what you believe and your convictions. And, and part of the question for you is like, is your effort enough to just make that happen? Or do you need something else? How do you accomplish this? The crux of this passage is in verse 12. And just like verse 5, it begins with a reference to what has come before. Verse 5 was a therefore. This one says, verse 12, put on then. That's another therefore word. Same thing. Because you're in Christ, because he loves you and died for you and rose from the dead. And, and Paul makes this kind of clarifying point about who he's talking to. And it's actually a really very tender of him to do this. It's actually really, really very tender because this call to put sin to death is so difficult and so challenging and so intense and can be so discouraging that he reminds us once more who we are. And here's what he says. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. Have you ever been in like a new city trying to navigate on a subway? Uh, maybe especially in, a, in another country. And you have no idea what track you are on and what track you're supposed to be at, what platform you're supposed to go for, what train you're supposed to look for. And then you find that map on the wall that has all the maze of all the tracks. And there's a big red arrow. And in red letters, there's a sign that says, you are here. And you, and you sort of locate yourself again. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, in the maze of this fight, of this race that you are running, you are here, chosen, holy, and beloved. You've been chosen. You've been selected. You are seen and valued by the God of the universe. You are holy. You've been called and, and, and drawn into his purposes and belonging to his family, a recipient of his love, and then you are his beloved. That our primary posture of existence is one of beloved child to loving father. That's, who, that, that's where you are as you fight this fight. It's a tender reminder of Paul. We've, we've put off, now we know where we are, and now Paul says put on. And basically what Paul's doing here is he's saying the opposite list. He's given us sort of the bad list, the list of things to run away from, to try to put to death. Now he's giving us the list of things to put on. And here's what he says. He says, compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness. Meekness is that strength of tenderness and sensitivity towards others that comes from the confidence of knowing who you belong to. That's what meekness is. Patience, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another just means being a faithful friend even when things are really hard. That's all that means, okay? And then forgiving each other. And the thing that holds all these together, that binds them, that summarizes them is love. You're going to put off all these tatters and you're going to put this beautiful royal robe on and that robe is love. That is what is going to adorn you, okay? It's, it's love. Now, uh, the, the thing we have to recognize here is that you cannot just make yourself more humble and more compassionate and more patient if you try hard. Have you ever tried to be more humble? I have tried it has only made me less humble because now I'm thinking about if other people think I'm humble or not. It's the worst. You actually can't just, you can't just do this stuff. You have to find these things. 
These things have to be cultivated in you. And the place where you find them, of course, is in Jesus himself. Jesus is the supreme compassionate one. Welcoming sinners, the sick, foreigners, the disabled to himself. Christ is supremely kind, the one who refuses to condemn others, honoring those who others dishonor. Christ is supremely humble, regarding his own life as nothing so that he might offer it in service of others. Christ is supremely meek. I mean, every interaction he has, he just knows who he is so he can be gentle and caring. Christ is supremely patient, bearing with us, sticking with us in every trial, sticking with us in our greatest moments of victory, sticking with us in our darkest moments of despair. Christ is supremely forgiving. He covers us. He hides us in the shadow of his wing, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we might be forgiven and clean and whole. The one who, as he's being crucified, asks that God might forgive those who are nailing his hands to the wood. And Christ is supremely loving. He is the perfect embodiment of love. He speaks the truth in love. He acts in love towards everyone that he meets, and he commits the ultimate act of love in laying down his life for our benefit. Christ is supreme in all these things, and that's why he's enough. Christ is supreme in these things, and no one else is. Christ is supreme in these things, so that's who we should follow. This, this section ends with this uh, kind of three-part blessing. He says, let the, let the peace of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what's inside of you bringing these things forth? The peace, the presence of Christ. This is the spirit of Christ. These things are, are not something that you can do, but they actually are grown in you as the Spirit works in your life. And then it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. God's Word is the place where we are taught, where we are formed, where, where our hearts and our minds and our imaginations and our hands are molded for the good purposes of love in the world. And then the last thing he says is, whatever you do, do everything in the name of Jesus. He says, every part of your life, dating and homework and exams, dinner with your friends, driving home, pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. It's all for Christ, and he is in all of it. It's all for Christ, and he is in all of it. And, and one of the things that I want to make sure that is, that is clear in this is, that, is the, the reason why Christians try to do good. The reason why Christians try to do good is not, is not duty. And the reason that Christians try to do good is not because we are afraid of bad consequences from God if we don't. This is the reason Christians try to do good. It's in, it's in verse 16. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We try to do good in the world in a response of gratitude and worship to the God who loves us. Who chose us to be holy and beloved before him. That's why Christians do good stuff. It's a response of gratitude and worship to the one who has already loved us and redeemed us and saved us. In, uh, in 2003, there's a guy named Aaron Ralston, and he was hiking and climbing 
uh, in eastern Utah, and he was uh, descending through a place called Slot Canyon, uh, a rock climbing, kind of descending, and an 800-pound boulder dislodged right as his hand was underneath it, and it fell on his hand, and it crushed it, and it pinned him so that he couldn't move. And he found himself stuck on the face of this cliff with his hand crushed under this enormous boulder. He hadn't told anyone where he was going to be. He was alone. He had one bottle of water and two burritos, which for the next three or four days he very, very slowly rationed. And, and, and each day trying to figure out new ways, new angles, new strength in himself to dislodge his arm. And, and he was never, never able to do it. He eventually contemplated the idea of cutting off his own arm to free himself because he knew that if he stayed there, he would die. And all he had was this little kind of multi-tool. Chase, where are you at? This little, <laughs> this little multi-tool. And he said, he said it wasn't even like a nice Leatherman. It's the kind of one you get for free when you buy like a new fishing rod, like a, a junky one. That had this little two-inch dull blade. The blade, blade kind of like this. And he was going to try to cut off his arm with it. Okay? Uh, and it became very clear to him that it wasn't going to work. Because he even like tried some initial attempts and he could just tell it just wasn't strong enough and he just didn't have the strength of will to do it. He wakes up on the, uh, on the fifth day. He's dehydrated. He's starving. He's delirious at this point. And, and in this final move of desperation, he realizes, if I don't get down, I'm going to die today. And he realizes that his little knife uh, is not strong enough to cut through the bone in his forearm. But he thinks, you know, if I can just twist myself in the right way with the right amount of torque, I can actually snap the bones in my arm. And that's what he did. And then he used a, a tourniquet. As a tourniquet, he had like the, uh, the hose from his camelback and he tied it around his arm right, right below his elbow. And he started to cut through his arm with a little two-inch dull knife. He saved the, the main arteries till, till, till the end and he eventually cut his own arm off. He then had to descend uh, 65 feet rappelling with one arm. Okay? And then he started the eight-mile hike back to where his camp was. Six miles into this hike, he actually encounters this family from the Netherlands who's on vacation, who's hiking. And they, and they, give, him, they give him food, and they give him water, and they, they have a, I guess they have a phone. They're able to call, and he gets medevac from a helicopter about four hours after he after he cut his arm off. He'd lost 40 pounds. He'd lost a quarter of the blood in his body. And he was alive. And he's still alive. Our, our fight against sin is kill or be killed. And the call for us is to cultivate this kind of desperation for life in God that makes us willing to endure the agony of cutting off things in our life things in our hearts, things in our relationships, things in our patterns and our behavior because we want to live. We want to finish the race of faith. And we do this in grateful love and worship towards Jesus. And he actually did bleed for us. He actually was willing to remove his whole life for you. 
He's enough for you. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are enough and you're the only one who is enough. And Lord, we praise you that you have uh, poured out your own life, poured out your blood so that we might live in you. I pray that you would give us the courage to put to death in our life the things that are not in line with you and your love. Lord, I pray for, for these kinds of conversations that we might have in the next week. Pray that you would give us safety and grace and confidence that comes from knowing that we belong to you so that we might fight against sin. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you as a source of all goodness. You say you are our life, and we praise you for it. We desperately need you. Lord, fill us with that desperate urgency to do whatever it takes to find life in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.